Welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutional government. I'm Adam White. From its very founding, the United States has recognized the importance of what it says and how it's seen on the global stage. Our Declaration of Independence began with an observation that, quote, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they, the framers, should declare the causes which impel them to the separation from England. Years later, President Washington, in his first inaugural address, pledged to lead a government that would, quote, win the affections of its citizens and command the respect of the world. More recently, and especially since World War II, this part of America's constitutional character led to the creation of institutions dedicated to communication abroad. And it's my pleasure today to be joined by the leader of one of these institutions. Jamie Fly is president and CEO of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. He was appointed to that position most recently in February of this year. He previously served in that role from August 2019 to June 2020. Maybe we'll talk a little bit later about his his interregnum. Previously, Jamie served in the White House's National Security Council, the Defense Department, and he was a foreign policy advisor to Senator Marco Rubio. And outside of government, he's been a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, co-director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy, and director of the Foreign Policy Initiative. And I should just add at the outset, Jamie is is one of my oldest friends in Washington, D.C. Jamie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Adam. Jamie, where are you joining us from, by the way? So today I'm joining you from Berlin, Germany, where my family is currently based, although I'm currently splitting my time between Berlin and Prague in the Czech Republic, which is where the headquarters of Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty is. It's an interesting story, the history of RFE RL, its place most recently in Prague, and its its work much earlier in Germany. And by the way, the name of that is a real mouthful, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Jamie, couldn't have you pick something simpler? It's a conglomeration, actually, of what was two independent organizations originally, both operating out of Cold War era Germany, but it was two radios, Radio Free Europe, which was focused on primarily the Warsaw Pact countries, and then Radio Liberty, which broadcasted the Soviet Union. And so I I guess when the merger happened decades later, there probably was no agreement on a new name. And so they just decided to combine the two. Well, for purposes of this podcast, we're just going to refer to it as R-F-E-R-L, and I'm sure I'll stutter it over, over it a couple of times. But could you just tell us about the mission and the origins of R-F-E-R-L? Yeah, I think as you noted in the introduction, the origins of the two radios, now Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, are in that period after the end of the Second World War, where the United States and its partners were engaged in significant institution building on the global stage. And part of the effort by the United States at the time was focused on reaching out to oppressed peoples who were enduring communism in Eastern Europe, in the Soviet Union itself. And there was a desire to have a public diplomacy programs, news and information that were objective and independent, unlike the state-controlled media in many of the countries that the broadcasts were targeted to. And so the two radios were set up by the United States government. Interestingly, unlike Voice of America, which was also set up around the same time, and which is a federal entity inside the U.S. government, the two radios, Radio for Europe and Radio Liberty, were conceived as private organizations outside the direct day-to-day editorial control of the United States government. And they were established initially in Germany 
broadcast primarily on, on radio, on transmission towers in parts of Western Europe, reaching across the Iron Curtain and trying to be that objective voice of truth, which people living under communism otherwise did not have access to it at that particular time. You know, just a couple of interesting footnotes to all this. I saw that originally Radio Liberty was called Radio Liberation and was renamed Radio Liberty after just a few names. I suppose Liberty leads to liberation, but I think it also signaled that the confidence of that institution that simply broadcasting the truth, true facts about what was happening in the world, true facts about what's happening in America, that that was in and of itself a tool of diplomacy. I guess I think of the saying, the truth shall set you free. In many ways, that's the briefest possible mission statement for RFELRL. I think that's exactly right. And that's the interesting thing about the mission of the radios throughout their Cold War history, right up through the modern day. There's a lot of talk now these days about disinformation, about propaganda. And we've seen hostile actors like Russia, China, a number of Gulf states have set up their own media outlets, kind of modeled on this Cold War era approach adopted by the United States. But a lot of the other countries, especially the non-democracies that have tried to enter this space, get a fundamental piece of the puzzle wrong. The power of the radios always was throughout the Cold War and still is to this day, the fact that they are spreading the truth. They're doing independent journalism. In the case of the Cold War period, they were bringing in people who had been exiled from their country and just giving them a platform, putting them in front of a microphone to talk to their fellow countrymen and women who were still living under oppression. There was not this attempt to spin the news, to present a biased version of world events. And that was really the power. That was what attracted the audience in many of the countries that RFERL was broadcasting to. And even to this day, that provides credibility to our journalists in the countries they operate, has a fantastic brand in each of those countries. The audience knows and respects the work of the radios, and they know that if the radio is putting out a piece of information that is factual, that it's not biased, that it's not propaganda. And so fundamentally, it's all about presenting the truth to those who otherwise don't have independent sources where they can find the truth. Now, surely over and over again, critics abroad would say that, that actually what RFERL and, and the rest of, of American broadcasting does, it is just propaganda. And they're calling it the truth is propaganda. I mean, when you face criticism like that, how do you respond? Well, there, that's where the radios in particular, given that although we're funded by the United States Congress through a congressional appropriation, we have a long history of editorial independence from U.S. government officials. There's a statutory firewall in the International Broadcasting Act, which is the current statute that governs the operations of U.S. international broadcasting that protects our journalists, that makes it improper and actually illegal for a U.S. government official, a State Department official, or someone like that to try to tell the radios what to cover or what not to cover. So we, for decades, have been very proud of our independence. There's a tension there, though, given that we are funded by taxpayer dollars, ultimately. Some of this we can talk about later actually continues to play out in American politics in the debate about the work of all of these networks, because I think some political figures in the United States, some members of Congress maybe would like us to move more in the direction of being a mouthpiece for the U.S. government. Those debates actually play out usually 
more often related to our sister network, Voice of America, partly because they are directly part of the federal government. They are federal employees, and their mission traditionally has been to tell America's story as part of their journalism, which has never been a significant part of the radio's mission. The radios are much more focused on providing surrogate journalism, going into countries where there is not a tradition of independent media, where there aren't a lot of alternatives for people to get objective news and information, and reporting on local events, on local politics, on corruption, on challenges that citizens are facing in their society, and basically mirroring the work of an independent news organization in those local countries. And so that's been the division of labor within U.S. international broadcasting. But you're right, it still has led to critics, both foreign, who accuse us of being propagandists, but then also domestic, who, quite frankly, I think would like us to perhaps to be prop, uh, to kind of take the gloves off and actually to push out a more clear vision of where American policy is going and almost speak on behalf of the United States. But my view is that that would undermine ultimately our credibility with our audiences because they're drawn to us because of our independence and because we're known for the truth. We'll circle back to that point in just a few moments, the, the relationship between RFERL and the United States government in general. But maybe for our listeners, that conversation would be more useful if we spent a little bit more time talking about what it actually is that RFERL does just in its day-to-day operations. I looked up its the mission statement for RFERL on the U.S. Agency for Global Media. And here's how it's described there. I don't know if RFERL has an official mission statement, but this is, this is what's on the page for the U.S. Agency for Global Media. RFERL's mission is to promote democratic values and institutions by reporting the news in countries where a free press is banned by the government or not fully established. Our journalists provide what many people cannot get locally, uncensored news, responsible discussion, and open debate. So what does that mean in practice? In practice, it means that we are trying to provide in societies that have a closed media space or a closing media space. So we're talking about countries in the modern context, in our post-Cold War history. We're talking about countries where you don't have the tradition that we've benefited from in the United States of a vibrant, independent media, where that tradition perhaps is newer, where it's under pressure at times by governments that are either democracies in transition or in countries that are ruled by authoritarian regimes and they feel threatened by independent media. And so we are broadcasting in those countries. When possible, we have bureaus on the ground with journalists working there to enhance our reporting. So we want to provide that tradition of independent media to those publics who otherwise would not have an option. In some of the places we operate, in some parts of Central Europe, there are independent media outlets. And so sometimes we're competing with private news outlets that are owned sometimes by Western interests or local businesses. But we also operate in many countries, especially places like Central Asia or in Russia itself, where there isn't a lot of diversity in media options. Some places, our audiences have a choice between us and between a state-funded outlet, an actual propaganda outlet funded by their own government. And obviously, those outlets are not going to provide facts and information and allow for that sort of public discussion about sensitive topics. And so we try to create that space inside those, those countries for that sort of information to be shared between citizens, and especially for citizens to learn more about what their governments are doing. 
In an interview that you gave on, on a, probably on another podcast last year, you described this aspect of RFERL's work in a way that really struck me. You said something along the lines of when RFERL covers a story that maybe the, the other government wouldn't want covered, that creates an opening or creates space for media in that country to begin covering that story. Am I getting that right? And if so, could you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, this was from my, my first tenure as president. On my first trip as president, I tried as much as possible to get out and visit our bureaus because we're operating in 23 countries across Eurasia. We don't have a physical bureau in all of them because we've been kicked out of some over the years. I could talk more about the challenges we're currently facing where we're under pressure right now, for instance, in Russia, the Kremlin is trying to close our bureau. But I've always tried to get out, understand what's going on in the countries where we operate, talk to our journalists, assess the situation they face, look at the competition, look at the challenges in that market. And on my first trip as president in 2019, I went to Central Asia to the country of Tajikistan, which borders Afghanistan, has dealt with challenges from extremism, has broader developmental issues, poverty, but is also in a neighborhood that's increasingly seeing Chinese influence. And it has a deep historical connection, obviously, to Russia because of its relationship with the Soviet Union. So an interesting place, a place where there is not a lot of media freedom, where there aren't a lot of other competitors that we have, but we have a very strong service there, which in the local brand is known as Radio Ozadi, which is widely respected. And I sat down with a number of other local Tajik journalists, and they told me, because you, Radio Ozadi, are here and you can cover topics A, B, and C, and you're unabashed about it, you're brave in your coverage when the government does something wrong or when the government is not tough on corruption or when the government is stealing money from the citizens and you cover all aspects of that story, A, B, and C, because you were able to say all those things about the government, because you're brave, we local Tajik journalists are at least able to cover A. We're at least able to say Radio Ozadi reported all of these problems that the government has failed to address. We're able to cover a little bit of that story. And in that way, we, by just being there, by doing this sort of journalism, by leading that sort of journalism in a place like Tajikistan, we allow a little bit of space for other outlets to start to gain a foothold which ultimately is in the interest of the Tajik people and is certainly in the interest of Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty. It's a fantastic dynamic being publicly funded that when I go into one of our markets, I do assess the competition. But quite frankly, I want to see competition. The whole point of our mission is to create more space for independent media, for objective journalism. And so when we are creating that foothold and opening up that door that's a positive thing. I don't look at that as a situation where I'm worried about loss of audience share. Quite frankly, the more the merrier in the way that RFERL operates across most of our coverage area. Now, we keep talking about radio, you have radio in your name, but just to be very clear for listeners, you're not just radio, right? No, we're now a multimedia news organization. The company has gone through a transition, especially over the last decade, like most major news organizations. Obviously, our history was radio during the Cold War. Over the last decade, though, we've gone through a significant transformation into a company that does extensive TV production across most of our language services. We launched after the Russian annexation of Crimea and the invasion of eastern Ukraine in 2014. 
We launched a 24-7 Russian language TV network called Current Time, which is available via satellite across most of Eurasia and then also available for free streaming online 24-7. And a lot of our other language services ranging from Iran to Central Asia all produce a variety of TV programs, some daily, some weekly, occasional documentaries. And so TV is now a big part of our business. And then finally, the current transformation, which I'm very focused on during my presidency, is our digital transformation. And that's another area where already the company has begun to shift online in a significant way for a number of years. But obviously, digital is the future for our audiences. And we're trying to make sure that we are producing content that is relevant to our audiences, but also is available to them on all of the platforms that we know that they care about, that they already use now, and trying to find out the platforms that they're going to be using in the years ahead. And that's a difficult challenge for any news organization, I think, globally. It's an especially difficult challenge for a news organization like us that's broadcasting in 23 countries in 27 languages, because each country often has a unique environment online, a unique set of social media platforms that are popular and different viewing and online consumption habits. And so I'm trying to make sure as we move into this digital era that we are as effective as we should be in terms of meeting our audience on those relevant platforms and using all the relevant tools to get our content in in front of that audience. And a moment ago, you you mentioned the challenges that RFERL faces today in getting its content out and operating in in various countries. Of course, challenges are nothing new. When when RFE and RL were new, they faced the challenges of getting their signals jammed, Radio Liberty's signals getting jammed by the Soviet Union and so on. So what are the challenges that you're facing today in in broadcasting from and, and in these countries? It's a whole host of challenges. Some of it still is on the transmission side. You're right. We were well known in many of our target countries for the jamming that happened by the security services. To this day, as RFERL president, and I travel to a number of those countries, even in places like the Czech Republic, which was one of our target countries, we don't broadcast in Czech anymore, but during the Cold War, we did. I can meet people who were avid listeners of the radios. And their, their memories about listening to the radios, a large part of it, they love the content and the programming, but a lot of it was the experience of sitting around the radio with sometimes parents who also were avid listeners and trying to turn the dial to get through the static of the jamming to find the correct frequency where they could still hear the signal. And usually the good thing was that we historians have written about this, that most of the security services actually left at least a channel in each country open because the security services wanted to monitor what the radios were saying. And so that allowed listeners, if they put in the effort, to actually find a way to listen despite the jamming. So we have a modern version of jamming, which is very interesting. We're blocked in some countries from getting access to satellite packages. We're blocked in some countries from getting radio licenses. But most of the modern authoritarian efforts to prevent access to audiences is now happening online. Our websites are often blocked. Now you can use circumvention technology, VPNs, and we certainly make those freely available to access our content. We'll sometimes, though, have also more targeted attempts. When we have, for instance, a YouTube channel aimed at a certain audience, 
will get harassed through that YouTube channel. So we'll sometimes get fault. We'll have false complaints submitted to social media companies that will say that we're abusing the terms of service and all in the hope of just shutting down our YouTube channel for several hours or several days. We'll have governments put pressure, direct pressure sometimes on particular social media platforms for even carrying our content. And so that's a very concerning set of developments that I think we see increasing. And it's an area where I think there needs to be more conversation probably in the United States, because a lot of these social media platforms are actually US companies, about what the responsibilities are to support freedom of speech, to support the transmission of information openly in closed societies. And all in all, I think we have a relatively positive relationship with the biggest platforms, but it's a dangerous area because I think we will probably see more governments turn to these sorts of pressure tactics to deprive their citizens of truthful and objective information. Well, let's turn now to the question of how RFERL fits into American government and American constitutional government in general. I alluded earlier to the U.S. Agency for Global Media. Maybe we can start with that and and its relation to RFERL. And I just note that RFERL is not the only broadcaster that that we're talking about in this part of our government. You alluded to Voice of America. The others that I see listed under the umbrella of, of the U.S. Agency for Global Media are the Office of Cuba Broadcasting, which is Radio and TV Marte. There's Radio Free Asia. There's the Middle Eastern Broadcasting Networks, which are Alhura TV and Radio Sawa, and then the Open Technology Fund. So could you give our listeners just a brief overview of how all of this fits together first under the umbrella of, of the U.S. Agency for Global Media? Sure. It's important to note the evolution of this governance structure because the current independent agency of the U.S. government, the U.S. Agency for Global Media, is a, in the, the span of the last 70 years, the history of RFERL, the U.S. Agency for Global Media is a relatively new phenomenon. During the Cold War, these organizations functioned as private entities. The first several decades, both Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty were actually funded Although they had private status, they were funded by U.S. government funds through the Central Intelligence Agency, which was not revealed until the 1970s. Interestingly, if you talk to historians from this period, though, there wasn't a lot of direct influence from the CIA on the day-to-day programming. And so I think the historical view of the radios was that they were funded, they were seen as doing a productive job by just propagating the truth by putting people in in front of the microphone and letting them talk to their fellow fellow countrymen. But after the CIA role was revealed, there was a congressional debate in the 1970s about the future of the radios. And that's when you began to move towards the current situation where the radios were moved more formally under a variety of governance structures, first starting with the State Department, but then eventually moving into a more independent structure within the United States government. And so the U.S. Agency Agency for Global Media is the current incarnation of what used to be the Broadcasting Board of Governors, a bipartisan committee, essentially, that oversaw U.S. broadcasting. And the reason it's been housed now outside of most of the major national security agencies is because Congress for decades has been very concerned about the direct day-to-day influence of U.S. foreign policymakers in the broadcast operations of all of these networks. They have always made clear in the variety of statutes that have governed the operations of RFPRL as well as the other networks that they want 
these networks to be editorially independent, to be doing objective journalism, meeting the highest standards of journalism. And they realized that there would be a temptation if these networks were brought too close to, for instance, the State Department or another agency, there'd be a temptation to push their coverage in a particular direction. Sometimes the United States government, a particular administration, wants to work constructively with a regime that might be an authoritarian regime, that might not be a democracy. Well, Congress has made very clear that they don't want Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty to be forced to change its coverage of that regime just because of the short-term interest of a particular administration. And so that's why they created the U.S. Agency for Global Media to be almost the embodiment of that statutory firewall walling these networks off from the rest of the U.S. government, despite the fact that they receive an annual appropriation from the U.S. Congress. So I understand the relationship between RFERL and Congress, and I understand that RFERL has a measure of independence from any given administration. But how independent is it? I mean, maybe we can just start with, from the ground up, who appoints the president and CEO of RFERL? Who hired you to this job? So that's a complicated question, partly because like the various governance structures overseeing the networks, even the appointment process for the heads of the networks has evolved over time and occasionally been changed by Congress. But the current structure in recent years has emphasized the role of the U.S. Agency for Global Media and a CEO of that agency to provide high-level strategy guidance to all of the networks and to play a role in the hiring and firing of the network heads. That's a slight change from the situation that was the case several years ago, where you had a board, a committee that basically appointed network heads and ensured that all of the networks were following the overarching strategy of the agency. And there's been a lot of debate about that in in recent years about which is the better model. Some people felt that the board was cumbersome could not move quickly to adapt. And so Congress then decided to move towards the direction of appointing a Senate-confirmed CEO or having an administration appoint a Senate-confirmed CEO. But now, given some of the events of the last year, which we can discuss, there's a pull in the other direction where there's already been a legislative effort to reinstate some sort of board because the decision was that, that maybe a CEO had too much power. This is when you look at all of the networks and you add up all of their budget. I mean, this agency oversees, I think, roughly $800 million a year of congressional appropriations. When you add them all together, even though the networks are not integrated, that's a large media operation. And quite frankly, I think it's one of the biggest media operations in the world. And so it's a lot of responsibility for one individual. And I think, again, given the events of the last year, I think the concern is that it's a lot of power to place in the hands of one individual, especially if that individual is seen as a partisan figure tied to a particular administration, where is a, throughout the history of U.S. international broadcasting, there was always a strong bipartisan role in the governance of the networks. Even as administrations came and went, the networks would not constantly be changing their editorial line. They wouldn't be shifting their coverage. And so I think where we're headed in the governance structure is towards a model where, again, there's a bipartisan set of individuals working through a board who work together with a CEO to ensure that the networks are fulfilling their congressionally mandated mission. You've alluded a couple of times to the events of the last year. You know, when I introduced you, I mentioned that 
You were appointed to be president and CEO of RFERL in February of this year. And you also were appointed to that role in, I guess, August of 2019. You served until June 2020. There's a break in the middle there because the head of US, the US Agency for Global Media, who was appointed by President Trump with the, the advice and consent of the Senate, I think, right? Yes. Head, yeah. Yes. He was confirmed right. by the Senate. Right. So he, he was appointed to that office with Senate confirmation, and he proceeded to remove the heads of, of RFE, RL, and other agencies. Now, if, if listeners want to learn more about that, there was plenty of news coverage about it at the time. I don't necessarily want to dwell on it here because I do want to stay focused on sort of the structural issues, but maybe I'd frame the question this way. In all my work on constitutional government, I'm always wary of independent parts of the federal government, right? We, the Constitution creates three branches of government. The people through the Electoral College elect a president to execute the laws. And, and normally I'm, I'm wary of, of independent agencies and so on. So what's wrong with the president and his appointees having direct authority over this? And shouldn't we presume that the president should be responsible directly for these things, given that he was elected by the American people? I think there's an argument that you could advance that, and that's how the CEO role was created by Congress. There was a desire to tie this particular individual more closely to an administration, to give them more authority, to not subject them to the need for direct oversight by a bipartisan board. I think the concern now is because of the direction, quite frankly, that Mr. Pack took the agency. I think if he would have used his powers more sparingly and maybe with more deliberation, the Biden administration would probably still have all the powers that Mr. Pack assumed when he was confirmed. But he decided to utilize all of his powers immediately and in very controversial fashion, not just removing the network heads, which was his power, but then also having his staff, who, who were political appointees, try to insert themselves into the editorial work of a number of the networks. Most First and foremost, he started with Voice of America, where I think he had a particular view of, of what they should be doing on a daily basis. But that clearly breached the longstanding congressional requirements in statute that the news operations of these networks, even if the leadership occasionally changes, the news operations should be editorially independent and not influenced by U.S. government officials and certainly not influenced by political appointees. So I think you can debate whether the agency should be fully independent, whether it should be governed by a board. But I think if you have the current congressional intent, which is framed very clearly in the International Broadcasting Act, that's where you run into trouble by placing too much power in the CEO. I think it's another conversation that can be had about whether the United States still wants to fund independent news organizations. And I mentioned earlier that there are some people, and Mr. Pack honestly may have been one of these, who believe that we shouldn't be spending taxpayer dollars doing independent news, that they'd much prefer that those taxpayer dollars be directed towards more programming focused on talking about the United States and particularly advancing a particular administration's viewpoint. And that's a debate that I think should be had in Congress. Up until now, that has not that view has not gained broad bipartisan support. It's not been embraced in the governance statute that oversees U.S. international broadcasting. But that is part of the ongoing debate, I think, about the role of these networks in, in the modern, modern era. As I mentioned in the intro, you worked in, in many capacities in government previously. You were at the Pentagon, you were in the White House, the National Security Council, 
You were the chief foreign policy advisor to Senator Marco Rubio. And so in those three areas of government, both in the executive branch and the legislative branch, you were working on diplomacy throughout it. How much did you think about RFERL and Voice of America and the other broadcasters from those parts of government? And then I guess also, now that you're at RFERL, how did your experience in those other government capacities shape your understanding of the value of RFERL? Yeah, I, I became familiar. I mean, I obviously knew from my work on the Cold War, I knew of RFERL from the Cold War history, but I began to interact with the organization in about a decade ago through one of my predecessors, Jeff Gedman, who was president of the organization for four years. And I began to, on a couple of trips to Prague, meet a number of the journalists. And I was just incredibly impressed by the people that I met, by their bravery, by their passion for the mission. And so I stayed in touch with the organization in various ways over the years. On Capitol Hill, part of the, given that the funding comes from Congress, Congress does oversight of the work of the networks. And so during some staff trips to places like Ukraine and Moldova, I actually visited with some RFRL journalists in the field and got a sense of the challenges that they face. And so it was an organization that I was following off and on for quite some time. I think in my current role does relate, you know, I'm not a journalist by training. Some network heads, some of the current network heads and at other organizations and some of our some of my predecessors at RFERL have been career-long journalists. But honestly, a lot of the role of president of RFERL is diplomatic. It's representing the company, engaging governments, often hostile governments that govern the countries where we operate, who are by nature skeptical of us, sometimes threatened by us. It's championing our journalists when they come under pressure. And I mentioned some of the online challenges, but some of our journalists also are physically attacked. We have a colleague right now in Belarus who's been in prison for months, jailed by the Lukashenko regime. And so it's trying to get our colleagues out of situations like that. It's pushing for international campaigns by friendly governments to advocate on, the, on behalf of our journalists when they face challenges or try to negotiate solutions when we're dealing with thorny legal issues like we are right now in Russia. And so a lot of my prior government experience, I think, has come in very handy as I've served as RFRL president now two times, because understanding how governments work, understanding how governments interact with each other plays an important role when you're trying to negotiate that access for journalists to do their jobs. And so I think Although I'm not in a policymaking role anymore tied to the U.S. government, I think a lot of that experience is very relevant. Now, some of your other experience that's relevant is your work immediately preceding joining RFERL. You were at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, where you co-directed a, a program titled the Alliance for Securing Democracy. And this was focused on the, the sort of global issue of information and disinformation. As a, as a weapon of foreign powers. Why don't you talk a little bit about that work that you did at the Alliance and then how that informs your mission now at RFERL? Yeah, it informs my work every day, I'd say, at Radio Fear Radio Liberty. This was a, a bipartisan transatlantic project that we set up, myself and Laura Rosenberger, who's now part of the Biden administration working at the National Security Council that we set up in the wake of the 2016 election to look at the issue of foreign interference in democracies. We've debated at length since 2016, 
the role that Russia and others have played in trying to sow chaos in American democracy. But it's not just an American phenomenon. It's a tool and a tactic that Russia in particular has been using for decades, certainly on its periphery, but also in the United States and in Western Europe. And so this was a, a project to both examine those tactics, to publicize them, to learn about them, to discuss the ways that governments and societies should respond to them. And through that effort, I learned quite a bit about especially the more modern online versions of this interference and the role that disinformation was playing in really tearing down the fabric of a number of our American democracy, but also the democracies of some of our allies. And it was a really concerning, it was an important project, but I think it was a chilling project in the sense that it gave me a sense of the scale of the problem and how much Russia and other authoritarians had really mastered these tools to sow chaos in democracy. And I really see, and RFERL is on the front lines of the response to this challenge, because yes, it's, it's partly figuring out how diplomatically to respond, how, what sort of retaliatory measures to pursue. But fundamentally, the weaknesses in our own democracy, which are present throughout any democracy, are when your trust in your institutions erode, perhaps when the media environment becomes one that's more susceptible to conspiracy theories and disinformation. And that's a modern challenge that many countries face because of the transformation of our media ecosystems due to everyone moving online to get news and information. And so I really believe that the best response to that broader breakdown in the media ecosystem is to strengthen independent media. I think that's the case in the United States where luckily we still have a lot of independent media outlets, although a lot of local media outlets have gone out of business. But in many of the countries where RFRL operates, there are a dwindling number of outlets that are truly independent of some corporate interest, a political interest, or the very governments under which they, they try to operate. I was excited about the opportunity to come work at RFRL as part of my response to this broader authoritarian information challenge that I think we're going to be dealing with certainly for years to come. Yeah, I was struck in, in reading back through the history of, of Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty of at its origins in, in the 1950s, when the National Committee for a Free Europe was first bringing, up, bring, bringing together donations, raising funds for, for its operations. One of the slogans from President Eisenhower at the time was to, quote, fight the big lie with the big truth. And again, this idea, as I said earlier, that the truth in and of itself is valuable, both for its own sake, but also as a tool for, for liberation. And that while in the short term, it might seem attractive to turn these institutions into sort of direct resources of short-term diplomacy, in the long run, their greatest value is in that measure of independence and that reputation for independence, which is built up over now 70 years but could be erased in a moment if it were misused. That's exactly right. And to bring us up to current times in Prague, I mean, the, the reason Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty is currently located in Prague and the reason it moved its headquarters from Munich in the 1990s was due to one man, Václav Havel, the Czech dissident who later became Czech president. And Václav Havel as some listeners may know, wrote about truth quite a bit. He wrote about the concept of living in truth and the power of living in truth, especially in 
the context when he was writing about it, the power of living in truth underneath an oppressive authoritarian regime and how fearful the regime is by average citizens who just dare to live in, in truth. That's a theme that I've embraced during my two times as president and my conversations with our staff, in part because Havel was an avid listener of our Czechoslovak service. He was interviewed repeatedly by it. He and other dissidents like Lech Walesa in Poland after the fall of the Berlin Wall and after the democratic revolutions in their countries spoke to the power of the radios and said in some cases that their revolutions would have been impossible without these independent outlets that provided these platforms for them and for like-minded people to exchange views. And so Václav Havel wanted to make sure that the radios were preserved and he wanted to give them a home in Prague. And so he negotiated with the U.S. government and the decision was made to move the radio's headquarters to Prague. And so we've been there ever since. The one final thing I'll just add about the, the legacy of Václav Havel is in our modern building, we initially were in the Czech parliament, the old Czech parliament building, which was leased to us by Havel and the Czech government. We later moved to a more modern building for security reasons. But it just so happens that our current headquarters is across the street from the cemetery where Václav Havel is buried. From my office in Prague, we can actually see the chapel where his burial site is. And so he was a strong supporter of the radios, a frequent visitor while he was still alive. And now his spirit, I think, still lives on. And it's not just his own personal involvement, but his concept of living in truth, which is exactly the mission of the radios throughout all the 23 countries where we still operate to this day. Well, Jamie, listeners who want to learn more about RFERL, they can see your website at RFERL.org. They can find you on Twitter at at RFERL. Jamie, is there anywhere else people should look for information about or by RFERL? No, I think I'd urge people to check out RFERL.org. When we're given that we're producing content in 27 languages, we have 27 different websites under that rubric that have individual coverage in the relevant country. And then at rfrl.org, we have a sampling in English of our best content from across our coverage area. So plenty of news from across Eurasia that people can explore by going to rfrl.org. Well, thanks for everything that you and and RFERL do, Jamie. And and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Adam. It was great to talk to you. And thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Unprecedential.